This is Baffled with David DeRoche, and this episode is called Aborting Abortion, How to Report Better on One of the Most Heated Topics of Our Time. You might be asking yourself, rightly so, what the hell does this man have to say about abortions? Why should anyone be listening to him? And a cis white dude at that? Is anyone listening to cis white guys anymore? I mean, aside from Alex Jones fans. Let's go, guys. Can I take a picture of something? Let's do it. Let's do it. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on. Yes, yes. You know what? You're right. I am a man, and honestly, I've said this a thousand times over the years whenever the abortion debate comes up. Any opinion I have about abortion policy is essentially irrelevant. You could say it's about as relevant as, I don't know, Donald Trump's advice about hair. I try like hell to hide that ball spot, folks. I work harder. What is that product you use, Donald? It must be that new gel made of paranoia and defenseless baby seals. Anyway, to be clear, this episode is not about the act of abortion and whether it's good or bad or neither. It's also not about the politicization of language around abortion discussions, though I will talk a little bit about how word choice is yet another symptom of the journalistic obsession with false dichotomies. That said, there will be times where I have to go into the debate itself because as journalists, we can't avoid discomfort for fear of appearing partisan. We have to report the truth no matter whom it offends. I imagine this episode is probably going to offend people on both sides of this debate. And just a quick reminder that the goal of this podcast is to improve the journalism profession and to help news consumers be more effective news critics and not knee-jerk reactionaries. I'm talking to you, lover of 2,000 Mules. 2,000 Mules came out, and it showed a lot of stuff. Uh, you've got 2,000 Mules. And then this movie, I'm 2,000 Mules. 2,000 Mules. Yes. 2,000 Mules is a documentary by Dinesh D'Souza, claiming massive voter fraud based on some cell phone data and surveillance footage that's been lauded by Trump, laughed at by Bill Barr, discredited by fact-checkers, and banned from even right-wing media because of its unfounded claims. You notice you turn off... Now that I've got that disclaimer out of the way, I need to set the stage for what I'm going to talk about. It all starts with an oddly timed leak of a Supreme Court draft decision. We begin with news of the legal and political earthquake at the Supreme Court. A leaked opinion suggests the court intends to strike down Roe v. Wade, the landmark abortion ruling. That's according to Politico, which last night... When Politico leaked Justice Alito's draft opinion in early May, the abortion rights community exploded in outrage. Even though the court was weeks away from an actual decision, it still created big news, and rightly so. It's a huge deal, and it shouldn't be understated or undercovered. But the leak of the draft clearly served as an attempt to rally abortion rights activists, which it most certainly did. That's because virtually all coverage of the leak was framed from a pro-abortion angle. Just look at the language used in all these stories, and the over-reliance on anecdotes with similar endings, and the consistent framing of the story under a legal lens of privacy rather than a public health one and the omission of key social and individual realities that exist due to unwanted pregnancies and unwanted births. Maybe that sounds like a bunch of gobbledygook, so let's unpack that a little. Because that's what we do here at Baffled. We unpack things like lunches and overly complicated social problems. From a journalistic standpoint, coverage of the draft decision was heavily biased. 
However, it did not impact the court's eventual decision. As you no doubt know, the court has since overturned Roe v. Wade, leaving no federal protections for women who want to terminate a pregnancy. Now, if you're an anti-abortion or pro-life activist, you might say that a developing embryo's right to life is finally being recognized. But again, that's not a debate for this podcast. But what is going to be discussed today is directly related to what I just did. I had to phrase a certain position in two different ways so I wouldn't piss off either side of this debate. And that, my baffled friends, is one more annoying byproduct of our bifurcated reporting on the topic of abortion. Let's unpack that a little bit more. Too often, coverage of abortion rights falls into the quote-unquote two-sides trap. It's as if people are either pro-choice or anti-choice, or pro-life or anti-life. Even in our descriptions of the sides, it's implied that a person cannot possibly be both pro-life and pro-choice. So from the very beginning, our discussion about abortion is polarized. And a polarized discussion about something so sensitive is bound to go nowhere. All it does is further entrench us in our pre-established beliefs. In episode one, we talked more about this, like how researchers from Columbia University discovered that when people read straight-up news stories with a typical two-sides approach, they tend to have more contentious debates about the topic after reading the article. But as journalist Amanda Ripley points out in her piece Complicating the Narrative, when people read a news story that's written with more nuance and complexity, and without the false dichotomy created by the two sides framing, people actually have better conversations. If people read something complex, they have better conversations with each other, especially if they disagree. They don't have to agree with each other, that's not the point. But they leave the conversation feeling like they've been heard and that they themselves have listened. Language is a huge part of the problem. For example, if you want to say that you're pro-life, how pro-life are you? Do you care about what happens to the baby after they're born? Or what kind of life they'll have with a mother who didn't want them? Or are you simply pro-birth and only care about an embryo until it's become a newborn baby? Or how pro-choice are you if you've had an abortion yourself but don't want somebody else to? Or maybe you're pro-life personally but pro-choice socially. In short, oversimplification is a real problem and it deeply affects how we talk about pregnancy termination. If you were to Google, quote, the problem with how we talk about abortions, end quote, you'd come across a ton of articles written by talented journalists or clinicians who have a lot to say about this subject. An overarching theme, however, is how right-wing America has co-opted our conversations about abortion by getting media outlets to use phrases like partial birth abortion and fetal heartbeat. Now, these are phrases that are factually inaccurate at best and completely misleading at worst. A fetus that's aborted and leaves through the vaginal canal is not born in any sense of the word, partially or otherwise, and the electrical pulse that happens at six weeks gestation is nothing close to a heartbeat. So yes, many journalists misuse these phrases. Perhaps in their attempt to remain unbiased and not offend pro-lifers, they accept language they see being used regularly by others, notably activists, politicians, and other journalists. But as these journalists critique the use of language around abortion in the news media, there is still a crucial piece missing in these reports, and it's this, nuance. Simply put, the attempts by activists and unscrupulous journalists to correct our use of language around abortion, these attempts, in effect, reinforce the false dichotomy that plagues abortion coverage, because this language almost always comes from a stereotypical pro-choice perspective. 
maybe I am too falling into that false dichotomy trap by using the shorthand pro-choice and pro-life. But let's be honest here. While the right has co-opted much of the language with false or misleading phrases, the left has also co-opted language to a point where it dominates the framing in news media, which then in turn shapes how many people understand abortion. Conversely, this rallies pro-lifers who see media coverage as biased, and so the polarization deepens. All of these things work together to reinforce the two-side illusion, which is just that, an illusion. And by not recognizing this, journalists unwittingly play into the hands of politicians and activists who benefit from the two-side illusion. It's so much easier for an activist or politician to have a clear enemy. And in our debates about abortion, the enemies are clearer than just about any other debate we have in this country. You either care about the fetus or you care about the mother. Why, human friends, do we fall into this trap? Is it not possible to care about both? Now that's a crazy idea. Howdy, friends. It's Crazy Ernie from Crazy Ernie's Used Car Emporium. It's a giant supermarket of cars. If nobody comes down and buys a car for me in the next hour, I'm gonna club this baby seal. That's right. I'm gonna but think about it. Is it possible for a person to be both pro-life personally, but pro-choice socially? In other words, to desire to never have an abortion individually, but accept another woman's right to make that decision on her own. And actually, America's opinions reflect this nuance. According to a recent Pew Research Center poll, only 8% of survey respondents said they think abortion should be illegal in all cases with no exceptions. Conversely, 19% said abortion should be legal in all cases with no restrictions. This means that nearly three-quarters of Americans have an opinion that is between these two extremes. This has been the case for decades, yet why do American journalists refuse to discuss abortion with more nuance? Why is the battle over language so completely polarizing? Why can't we more sensitively discuss a topic that is so polarizing? Why do we keep trying to hit our audience over the head with a pedantic sledgehammer? Here's a suggestion. Let's stop using shorthand phrases like pro-choice and anti-abortion. Those two phrases drastically oversimplify the complexities of such a sensitive topic and arguably do more to further polarize the discussion. Of course, I understand why we use shorthand terms in journalism. It's obvious, right? We can't explain a complex thing every time we refer to it, so coming up with shortcuts makes sense, right? Well, to a point. What I find most interesting is that both the right of a woman to have an abortion and the right of an embryo to develop into a fetus and then into a human being are actually extensions of the inalienable rights laid out in our Constitution, an individual's right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So instead of framing these things like pro-choice or pro-abortion or pro-life or anti-abortion, when we use shorthand, why not talk about the individual's right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? If we must resort to shorthand, maybe these phrases would work better advocates of women's rights, and advocates of fetal rights or embryo rights. Doesn't that more accurately describe what we're actually talking about? Advocates of women's rights, advocates of fetal rights. Possible? Now, admittedly, this is also an oversimplification, but at least it more accurately describes the core ideologies that we're actually talking about. Of course, the definition of life is where things get tricky, and that's front and center of the ongoing legal debate. This podcast isn't going to touch that one, but that's not really the point. The point is how we as journalists think and report about abortion. Maybe if journalists internalized this deeper meaning and framed their stories accordingly, it would help all of us better discuss this topic. And maybe it would even help lawmakers, as it would more accurately reflect the will of the people. 
Because right now, fetal rights extremists are a minority in America, but they have a deep grasp on lawmakers and their understanding of abortion. And I can't help but wonder if well-meaning journalists have been unintentional pawns as this has unfolded on the right and the left. As journalists on the left attempt to call out false claims made by embryo rights extremists, they often inadvertently amplify those false claims because of the language used in the pro-abortion framing. This then has an opposite effect. It becomes a rallying cry for extreme activism on the right. Conversely, journalists on the right often allow extreme voices to carry equal weight with other voices, creating a false equivalence that doesn't match what most people actually think, according to numerous surveys and polling data. These two phenomena work together to manipulate lawmakers who think they're doing what people want when in fact they're not. Now think about that for a second. Our failure as journalists to introduce complexity in the abortion debate has arguably led to a reality in which lawmakers do not actually understand what people want. Is there any other threat to democracy more dangerous than that? A world in which the failure of journalists leads our elected officials to not fully understand reality? Of course, there are plenty of other things influencing our representatives, but journalism is certainly a large part of that equation. Of course, journalists need to report on all sides, but all sides means exactly that. All sides, not two sides, which we are infatuated with as journalists, but all sides and all of their complexity. If we can't get all sides or we don't know what they are, just admit it. Admitting it leaves the reporting open and it shows that you're humble and without pretense and not the all-knowing journalist that so many of us pretend to be or otherwise feel obligated to be. So that's my first piece of advice. Let's add some complexity when we discuss abortion rights and the rights of a developing fetus in terms of the constitutional right of an individual to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The next thing we should be doing when we report on abortion issues is this. Stop framing this as a privacy matter and solely look at it from a health perspective. And to do that successfully, we have to reframe how we talk about healthcare. Too often in the United States, healthcare is a topic about who can afford what. It almost always comes down to money. In fact, if you come across an American journalist's story about healthcare, you'd find way more references to money than any reference to basic human rights, which is really what we're talking about here. The reasons why journalists continue to talk about healthcare from a cost perspective might be complicated, but it seems to be directly tied to how we talk about almost everything. We live in a society where money matters the most. It motivates just about everyone. But by focusing on the cost, we end up focusing on the problem of cost and who's to blame for it being out of control. Inevitably, we lose sight of the very simple reality, which is that healthcare is a basic human right. There's no should be or could be, it is. And I'm, I'm sorry if you disagree with that. Maybe it's time to go back to kindergarten and start from the beginning. A is for apple. Yum, yum, yum. B is for baffle. Whoa, whoa, whoa. In all honesty, maybe it's unfair for me to blame you for not thinking that healthcare is a basic human right. The fault might not be your own, but it might be on the shoulders of journalists who have for decades framed healthcare in terms of cost and framed the problems around cost in terms of who or what is responsible. And an analysis of two decades worth of news articles highlights perfectly and sadly what I'm talking about here. Back in 2015, researchers at the School of Journalism and Mass Communications from the University of South Carolina analyzed a variety of news outlets, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, CNN, and Fox News. They examined stories from 1993 to 2010 when the Affordable Care Act was passed. 
They were trying to see how journalists framed the problem of rising costs in healthcare. The researchers found that journalists across media outlets, both conservative and liberal, they more often blame the rising costs of healthcare on individual patients. And patient blaming has become even more prevalent over the years. This means that they're minimizing the impact of other factors that raise costs, such as healthcare providers, insurance companies, the government, pharmaceutical corporations, or any other peripheral group that drives up cost. And in doing so, by mostly focusing on how patients increase costs, journalists have nurtured a false reality, that is that you, me, and other individual human beings are the primary drivers of increased cost. Now, this belittles the roles of other factors, which are arguably far more influential on rising costs. Take, for example, the rise in profits for private health care insurers. Did you know that in 2020, the year of the pandemic and shutdowns and overcrowded hospitals, in 2020, health care insurers paid out $14 billion in dividends to shareholders, according to the National Association of Insurance Commissioners. That's right, $14 billion with a B, as in baffled. Here's another ghastly tidbit. Revenue from premiums went up 11% in 2020 to over $80 billion. Meanwhile, most people's salaries remain almost flat. The Kaiser Family Foundation reports that the cost of employer-sponsored family policies are up 47% since 2011, while wage increases during that same time are barely over 11%. But these numbers pale in comparison to how big pharma rakes in the dough. From 2000 to 2018, 35 large pharmaceutical companies reported net income of $1.9 trillion, while hundreds of other smaller drug companies netted $9.4 trillion during that time. To be clear, in 18 years, drug companies have netted, pure profit, mind you, over $10 trillion, with a T, dollars, U.S. dollars. Hospitals, on the other hand, saw their revenue drop in 2020. Aside from that year, hospitals typically enjoy a 5 to 7% profit margin, but when the pandemic hit, expenses went up and revenue from patients went down. I can't help but see the sad irony here. Hospitals, the actual physical places where doctors and nurses and staff work every day to save lives, they lost money during the pandemic, while insurance companies and big pharma made billions. It's sad irony, right? Again, I'd argue that a leading cause of this phenomena is what I've been talking about all along. We don't see healthcare as a basic human right. This is why journalists focus on individual patients and not systems, which is ultimately a consequence of our version of consumer capitalism, which values individualism over the collective and the simple over the complex and the pencil pushers over the service providers. And most importantly for this episode, this is also why our discussion about abortion suffers, because these discussions happen within a society that doesn't truly value an individual's right to health care access. Discussion over abortion instead becomes a battle over ideologies and beliefs rather than inalienable rights. Conversely, discussion over an embryo's right to develop also exists outside of healthcare and is also subject to ideology or belief. And as a result, we all just scream at each other and nothing gets accomplished. Instead, the loud minority rule the airwaves and twist the will of the people, pushing extreme agendas and forcing us to take sides when most of us see both sides and prefer a third, more amicable path. So my advice to journalists who cover abortion issues, start framing abortion as an aspect of healthcare. But to do that effectively, we must first frame healthcare as a basic human right. We must also stop focusing so much on the legal question of privacy. 
We should also slow down on the individual anecdotes and dig more into systems. Now, I know it's not sexy and it doesn't fit into a tweet, but we owe it to ourselves to dig deeper into this, even if it means we miss a deadline. In fact, your deadline is dumb. Say it with me now. My deadline is dumb. Your deadline is only meaningful if you've got the story right. If there are pieces missing, don't publish. Or at the very least, just say what is missing. Tell people what you don't have or what you don't know. It keeps the door open and keeps you humble. My third piece of advice on covering abortion is this. We should do our very best to include historical and contextualized information on adoption and foster care whenever we report on abortion. Now, I know this is a polarizing topic, and advocates of women's rights would say that a woman should never be forced to carry it a full term, which is obviously what has to happen for adoption to be an option in lieu of abortion. But in the simple interest of fairness, from a journalism perspective, there are three reasons why adoption should be referenced in reporting on abortion. First of all, it's a constant talking point of the embryo rights activists. If journalists ignore the topic of adoption, they risk polarizing those activists who interpret the omission as pro-abortion advocacy. In other words, you give fuel to the fire of people who support embryo rights and you deepen distrust. To be clear, we shouldn't present adoption as some sort of choice on par with abortion. That would be creating a false equivalence. Instead, it needs to be mentioned with important context. Take this as an opportunity to contextualize what adoption actually means. That's the second reason why we should talk about adoption when reporting on abortion. It gives you a chance to provide deeper meaning and perhaps open people's eyes. If you report on abortion and include historical data on adoptions, which has quite a dark history, and also include the cost of adoption, News alert, only rich people can afford to adopt, apparently. and also include information on the possibility of trauma for a mother who gives up a child and for a child who grows up potentially feeling abandoned, and also the troubling outcomes and disparities among children of color who end up in the system. If you include all those data, it could help eliminate the false equivalency that so many people feel about adoption as a substitute for abortion. This also gives you a chance to report on the foster care system, which is the third reason to talk about adoption when reporting on abortion. Foster care is one of the most flawed systems in the U.S. It's often seen as punishment for being poor because of the misinterpreted definition of neglect. For example, if a family can't afford heat in the winter, that could be seen as neglect and a kid could be taken away. Consider also that 70% of kids in the juvenile justice system have experience in foster care and that black and brown kids are more likely to end up in the system because of inherent bias. It seems clear to me that it's a huge problem. Kids who are born to mothers who don't want them might not be adopted, but instead they might end up in the foster system or maybe their mothers keep them. Journalists should provide people with information on the foster care system, too, to further contextualize the reality of women who are forced to give birth to children they did not want. It's in the name of fairness that we should discuss adoption and foster care when talking about abortion. The three issues are inextricably linked, and we do the public a disservice by ignoring any one of these topics. Speaking of fairness, this brings me to my fourth point. When we report on abortion anecdotes, it might be worth including a man's perspective. To be clear, men are overrepresented in virtually all aspects of society, particularly white men like me, but that's not a good reason for men to be virtually absent from personal anecdotes about abortion. Currently, the experiences of men whose partners have abortions are rare sites in the news media. 
Because of this omission, several things happen that make it harder for us as a country to have a fair discussion about something so divisive. First, it minimizes the importance of reproductive rights and how they benefit both women and men. Second, it deters men from sharing their stories and their feelings, as their lack of representation perpetuates the cultural expectation that they remain silent. That, in turn, could harm their relationships in the future with women, as they internalize their experiences, and it could also prevent them from publicly advocating for reproductive rights. Third, it ignores the fact that most women discuss their pregnancy with their partner prior to making a decision to abort. And lastly, it fuels the anti-abortion movement who view the omission of men as a flagrant act of bias, which deepens distrust. Now, from a legal standpoint, the Supreme Court has held that men are not entitled to be told that a woman carrying a seed is having an abortion. But from a journalistic standpoint, when a man is informed, the man's experience is not completely invalid and without merit. If only because most women who get an abortion are in established relationships, and one of the most frequently stated reasons for terminating a pregnancy is related to the woman's partner. That's according to at least six studies going back to 1988. In other words, it's not only for a man's sake that we need to include men in abortion stories. It's also for the sake of women who cite their partner as having played a critical role in this decision. It's also for the sake of the truth, accuracy, and for fairness to the entire story. Otherwise, if you omit men, you risk being seen by embryo rights activists as biased, which again deepens distrust. Yet at every stage of the abortion process, from the law to the actual procedure to media coverage and to a great extent the ongoing healing process, men are either completely absent or minimally involved. Let's dig a little deeper into that. Think about all those media stories that focus on personal anecdotes about women who have an unwanted pregnancy. Those stories are everywhere. Literally just Google abortion stories and you'll find thousands of personal stories of women who got pregnant then struggled to figure out what to do. Journalists, however, have not done these stories justice because they almost always omit the woman's partner. I did a little experiment. I went to the top 10 news stories in Google after searching abortion stories. I got hits from Forbes, The New York Times, NPR, The Cut, CNN, Fox News, Newsweek, Elle, and The Kansas City Star. I opened each article and searched for four keywords, man, boyfriend, husband, and partner. Now, some articles were behind a paywall, but I looked at six of them, and believe it or not, the word man did not appear a single time in any of the news articles. The words boyfriend and husband appeared in a single sentence in the cut article, and there were passing references with no specificity. Some of these articles include multiple abortion stories, and yet never a reference to the woman's partner. Now, under the surface, there's a lot we could unpack here, namely that men have tried to control women's bodies for millennia and that men's voices are already way too loud in state and federal courts and legislatures. But when it comes to the personal anecdotes about abortion that journalists write all the time, in those stories, we almost never hear from the woman's partner. Again, excluding men is a disservice to women and a minimization of the importance of reproductive rights to both women and men. In an essay for Glamour, actress Sophia Bush talks about how her husband's former partner had an abortion when he was young and how that woman's decision to abort enabled Sophia and her husband to later meet and fall in love. Had they not decided to abort, they might have gotten married and Sophia would be single today. It's this ripple effect of reproductive rights that's minimized when we only focus on the woman's side. 
Amy Hackstrom Miller runs Whole Woman's Health. It's a company that manages abortion clinics in several states. And she tells the BBC that, quote, abortion benefits women and men and families. Millions of men have benefited from having access to abortion, end quote. The Guttmacher Institute notes that almost two-thirds of abortion patients are already parents. Many are simply grappling with the financial and emotional cost of another child. More often than not, the abortion decision is made between a woman and her partner. So why, then, are men so often excluded in media coverage? It could be for reasons I've already stated related to power and control, but on an individual level, not on a policy or cultural level, a man who impregnates a woman likely has feelings about that pregnancy. And it's quite possible that the woman who is pregnant cares about his feelings. Both of their feelings about the situation are rooted in the complex social and biological roles that their respective sexes inhabit. To exclude men is almost to invalidate their feelings, which, in effect, invalidates the feelings of women who care about what their partner feels. This exclusion does a disservice to factual accuracy at best, and it deepens polarization at worst, because it becomes more fodder for fetal rights activists in their complaints about a biased media. Look at these damn reporters can't ever talk about men in stories about killing babies. We need to hear more from men. In the interest of fairness, we should include men in some personal stories about abortion. As Sophia Bush put it in her essay, quote, We need to tell our stories, men, women, all of us, to remember that our liberty is deeply bound together, end quote. Okay, to sum up, let's stop oversimplifying the positions into two camps. Very few people are 100% pro-life or pro-choice. Most of us are in between. If we absolutely have to use shorthand, let's say advocate of women's rights or advocate of fetal rights, because that is actually what we're talking about when you get down to brass tacks. Second, let's stop focusing on a woman's right to privacy, which is what Roe v. Wade was all about, and start focusing on abortion as a matter of healthcare, and start framing healthcare as a fundamental human right, and not a burdensome cost that we must mitigate. Third, let's always mention adoption and foster care when reporting on abortion. Don't just mention it in passing, but offer historical context and data to provide a fuller picture about what often happens to unwanted children who are forced to be born. Fourth, consider including men in personal anecdotes about women who have abortions. The last piece of advice is simple and actually applies to any reporting, really. Let's take great pains to avoid being mouthpieces for extreme views. I was watching a BBC piece recently about abortion, and here's how the piece starts. Heavenly Father. Outside this abortion clinic in Wichita, Kansas, protesters are praying for the women going inside to change their minds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm trying to stop women, our men who may be bringing women in, or friends who may be bringing women in from killing their babies, because I feel that every baby has a, a right to life. As well as handing out leaflets. Now, I, I don't know about you, but letting someone use the phrase kill their baby is a massive mistake. I generally love the BBC, and of course no news outlet is perfect, but Letting this comment slide is a big error. Now, it could be argued that BBC's audience is generally British and not American, so maybe they were trying to highlight the kind of person who is against women's rights in America by allowing this woman to say this. But it could also be argued that allowing for this language to be used allows for the values behind this language to perpetuate. In other words, you're helping them spread that message. 
If a child or an impressionable young person sees that story, they might immediately think that an abortion is the act of killing a baby, which of course is ludicrous in almost all cases. On the other side, we also can't allow women's rights activists to use language that promotes their values. Again, this happens when we use phrases like anti-abortion to describe an entire group of people who may be personally against abortion, but who respect a woman's right to have dominion over her own body. To reiterate, language matters. Speaking of language, when I told my mom I was working on an episode about abortion, she pointed out that she hates that word, abortion. And I have to say, I kind of agree. I mean, we use the term abort almost exclusively when it comes to pregnancy, and the only other times we really use it are when we're talking about abandoning or abruptly canceling something. Pregnancy termination may be better, I'm not sure. If there is a better term to use, let's figure it out. Maybe that's exactly what this conversation needs, a complete rebranding. At the very least, we should be much more thoughtful when it comes to language. Aren't journalists supposed to minimize harm? Aren't we supposed to act independently and fairly? Let's be the journalists we need to be to fix this damn country. All right, Earth citizens, time to wrap it up. Uh, uh, that was not a condom joke. Yikes. I'm just trying to end this podcast, people. Get your head out of the gutter. Let me know what you think of the podcast. There are no doubt other things journalists should be keeping in mind as we cover abortion. My ideas are by no means comprehensive. If you have some thoughts, please tell me. You can find me on Twitter at SavingEJ, or you can email me at david.deroche at qu.edu. That's david.d-e-s-r-o-c-h-e-s at q-u.edu. This podcast is a production of the Quinnipiac University Podcast Studio. Please subscribe on the app of your choice. To learn more about this podcast, you can visit quinnipiacpodcasts.com slash baffledwithdavidroche. Don't forget to throw some hyphens in there. You can also learn more about all the podcasts we do here at the university by going to qu.edu slash podcast. Be well, humans. Your life depends on it.